This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Andrew Bowser. And I'm Sapphire Sindalo. And welcome to Alter Weekly. Coming up on the show, we talk with two creators from the Monstrous Femme Films Collective. First, we discuss costume design and horror with Emma Kogan. Then, we're joined by Hannah May Cumming to talk about her short film, Fanatico, and what Monstrous Femme Films hopes to achieve in the future. But first, I should say at the top, it is raining, and uh, you will hear the rain on the microphone pretty much the entire time. Um, I don't think there's any way to stop it from picking up on my mic. So I wanted to let everybody know that we were aware of that. Mm-hmm. It's just spooky ambiance. It's spooky ambiance. Yeah. Get over it. You, you got it for free. We're not even charging <laughs> you any extra for this spooky ambiance. Exactly. So now you got to add rain to the rest of the podcast. I know. So yeah. It's consistent. Yeah. And some, uh, some thunder rolling and lightning crashes. Ooh. Um, so speaking of spooky ambiance. I've been on a kick of watching like dark mansion movies. Um, okay. Yeah, like, uh, but specifically with a comedic bent. You are now entering the Bowser Zone, wherein Bowser discusses an obscure horror comedy nobody cares about. So I watched uh, High Spirits. I don't know if you've ever seen High Spirits. Uh, not. All right, it's uh, crazy, <laughs> but. Um, it's an Irish film uh, from the director Neil Jordan, and uh, Liam Neeson plays a, an angry, violent ghost, and Steve Gutenberg falls in love with his ghost wife, uh, played by Daryl Hannah from Splash, and uh, it all takes place in this mansion. Uh, then I watched Haunted Honeymoon with Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner, which is almost equally as crazy, but I love it. I love okay. Gene Wilder to me is, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just one of my... One of my guys. But that all led me to watching Nothing But Trouble. Have you okay. ever heard of Nothing But Trouble? Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Demi Moore. No. So I am ashamed to admit I had never watched Nothing But Trouble until this week. Because if it's made for anyone, it's made for me. I don't oh, wow. know who else would like this movie, would sit through this movie. Now... <laughs> Uh, the reason I bring it up is because I've just done like a deep dive on why this movie exists and how okay. it exists in uh, the the way that it does, which is, is that it's very expensive. It's like this really expensive, insane horror comedy that arguably doesn't work on any level. Wow. Yes. Um, I actually would. I'd love for you to watch it because. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it would be an interesting experiment because uh, it's a wild one. 
It's about uh, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore are going on a, a road trip. Uh, their plan is to go to Atlantic City. And, uh, and along the way, he's speeding and they get pulled over in like a small town in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and it turns out it's not as simple as paying this, this traffic violation. They've got to go to the justice of the peace, the local justice of the peace, and he'll determine what their punishment is. And the local justice of the peace is played by Dan Aykroyd in heavy prosthetics, uh, looking like a, an insane person who basically traps them in a madhouse with like monsters what? and mutants. And it's, it, 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 there's a, there's a, a roller coaster that goes through the house that then goes into a, 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 a pit called the bone stripper and it kills people. It takes their skin off. Whoa. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It does sound oh, like the roller coaster in the house. Sounds cool. <laughs> yes. It, that stuff is really cool. But this is, as I'm watching it, I've known it's this infamous bomb. I've known it's this misfire and it was the only film Dan Aykroyd directed. And I, it, it's loomed large in my, you know, knowledge base, but I'd never sat down and watched it. And the thing that struck me was just how good it looked. It looked fantastic. And the set design is like sprawling and it felt like they spared no expense. So I had to dig deeper as to like why this film had so much support. It all spawned from Dan Aykroyd watching Hellraiser. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So supposedly he was watching um, Hellraiser with a buddy. Uh, I think they had gone to see a comedy, um, or oh no, they maybe didn't want to see a comedy because they both worked in comedy. So they okay. uh, they opted to see whatever else was out at the theater at the time uh, that wasn't a comedy, and it was Hellraiser. And Dan Aykroyd claims that as they sat there and watched Hellraiser, people laughed, which I I find surprising because I would have thought when it came out yeah. it. it was right scary Terrifying. to people yeah for that audience for that like audience at that time yeah <laughs> but he says that people were laughing and he walked out of there and uh and to his his buddy he was like we could make like a horror comedy that was intentionally funny and that would be a really cool blend uh... what i find is so interesting is that like ghostbusters had already happened though but i guess he didn't see that as a horror comedy more of like a paranormal mm. comedy same thing same thing same thing <laughs> Um, and so he, 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 he personally, at some point when he was driving from Canada to New York for SNL had, uh, gotten pulled over in a small town for speeding and had to go to a local justice of the peace huh. and take part in like a kind of kangaroo court scenario where he was then fined 50 bucks. But he thought that would be terrifying if you were trapped in a small town and the rules just mm -hmm. didn't, you know, apply the, the bigger picture rules of society didn't apply. So he started writing the script and I mean, it's kind of as simple as he took it to Warner Brothers and they were like, sure, $40 million, go make it. Wow. But it's, be you know, it's because he was plugged in and so big in the comedy scene and they thought they would partner him with a director like John Landis or John Hughes mm -hmm. even. Mm -hmm. um, and the studio was like, I want John Candy in it. I want Chevy Chase in it. Mm -hmm. I want the biggest star, uh, female star of the time. Demi Moore had just done Ghost and was mm -hmm. like hot, you know? And they build out the film with all of those names and they can't get a director because every director is like, well, the script is garbage. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, not for me. And so Dan Aykroyd eventually is like, well, what if I directed it? And Warner Brothers said, yes, sure. Which, I mean, even he would say made no sense 
absolutely no sense uh-huh. because there's okay. so many large set pieces. There's so much prosthetic makeup and effects, creature effects, special effect. It like he was beyond out of his uh, depths. But because of his work as an actor in so many successful films, he was able to gather a really, really efficient crew, including like the production designer from Total Recall and RoboCop and uh, wow, okay. the DP who shot The Thing. Um, so they loved Dan Aykroyd and basically he was really honest with how little he knew. And they were like, we're here, man, we're here. Like, talk to us. Mm. And, you know, they all worked with him to get the film into shape. And especially because he was kind of forthright with how little he knew as a director and had no ego about it. Yeah. They all really rallied around him and, and pulled off the movie. But along the way, I think certain people like the production designer thought, well, this is going to be like an unending well of resource because it's Dan Aykroyd from Ghostbusters. I'm going to keep asking Warner Brothers for more and more. And anything I pitch to Dan, he falls in love with because he doesn't know, like, you got to cap that stuff. So the production designer would go to Dan Aykroyd and say, what if there was a room and they open the door just for one gag and there's 300 live bats? And Dan Aykroyd was like, yeah, dude. And so then they'd go to Warner Brothers and get money for that. Were there actual bats? Yeah, there's a room that's just bats. And I was like, what a great not CGI bag. Not CGI bats. Just a bunch of fucking bats. I hope they were treated okay. I hope so too. Every (laughs) time that's what I think about. No, but even I do when I'm watching older movies and I see animals. And I'm like, dude, back then they didn't that back then they'd be like, Well, only 10 bats died. Who cares? Oh no, that's too many bats. It's too many bats. It's too many bats. Um, they had an idea that like, what if the, the dinner table was actually a train set and it brought your food around and they, and they were like, let's go ask one of us 25 grand for the train set. And they're like, okay, okay. And they just kept saying yes to it. it. And I don't know why, because nothing in the DNA of this project says blockbuster to me. I mean, and I would, I would love this shit. If I had seen it as a kid, I might've loved it, Mm -hmm. but now I do see how detrimentally flawed it is also beetlejuice had happened so they thought like well so it's like kind of beetlejuice meets texas chainsaw massacre whoa yeah was it though kind of that's the thing Hmm. you kind of sit back and you're like well that is that and it doesn't work so (laughs) the only thing i would argue is there is no central anchoring comedic performance uh, in chevy chase and Hmm. you know beetlejuice arguably works because of the charm of that central figure that's able to kind of keep everything together, like magnetically, Mm -hmm. but supposedly Chevy Chase surprise to no one was a giant asshole to everybody and wouldn't, didn't care that Dan and him had been friends forever. He was like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I don't want to be here. This movie is, I don't even get it. It's garbage. And just, what are you doing there? And what are you doing? What are you doing there, dude? And what's so weird is, you watch the movie and you, you're you like, oh, wow, that's Chevy Chase not giving a fuck. You know, he's, yeah, it's, and it sucks because it could have been saved if someone in that role had maybe said, okay, if I give 110%, more of this will work than won't work. Mm-hmm. But he's giving like, I'd say like a cool 80. And wow. that makes it mostly not work. Demi Moore was all on board. She got along with everyone. And, and even though she was at some point is tortured by two giant 500 pound baby men, um, that happens in the film. <laughs> what is this it, it, you, you've got to watch it. Uh, so, so then 
when it came time to release it, I think there had been a changing of the guard at Warner Brothers and they watched it and they were like, the fuck is this? Who is this for? <laughs> Why did we sign Why up? Why did we sign up for this? At some point, a Warner Brothers executive um, um, tele- sent a telegram to Dan Aykroyd that just said, stop the bleeding, talking about the money they were losing. <laughs> anyway, they didn't know what to do with it upon release and they tried to hide the, the horror aspect of it. Um, oh. and make it look friendlier. So the, the poster had been a painting by Boris Vallejo, who had done, I mean, he's done so much, but had done the the uh, Christmas vacation, all the vacation posters mm. in that very, you know, epic style. And they did this great horror poster of all the creatures coming out and Chevy Chase holding a femur up as if that's his weapon. And the studio was like, no, we're going to kind of Photoshop some heads together to make this look a little friendlier. Um, and it didn't work. Massive bomb. Obviously, Dan Aykroyd didn't direct anything ever again. People think it also hurt his star power just because it was his name, you know, on like five or six different roles, writer, director, producer, playing three different parts. There's a 15 minute long dance number, a music number from Digital Underground, um, the group that sang Do the Humpty Hump, come on, do the Humpty oh. And Tupac Shakur is there. Wait. What? I know. Tupac's it, in this movie. Doesn't it sound like I'm making this up? Yes, I don't believe you. Believe me, Tupac Shakur Tupac has an IMDb credit yes, <laughs> for this movie. Yes, that it, it is his first feature film credit, and he is in the entire 15 minute musical number. And the Digital Underground are like dancing around Dan Aykroyd as he plays organ. I mean. <laughs> It, I, like that was not the direction I thought this was gonna go. I if you if I bet money on whether or not you were gonna mention Tupac in our yeah, yeah. opening chat, <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, what? "How do we get there?" And how we got there was nothing but trouble. That is wild. I feel like Tupac being in it for some reason is the most wild thing to me about everything you said. As a viewer, it was. <laughs> I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, this is this is crazy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe they built that that whole mansion facade on the Warner Brothers lot. Oh my gosh, so much money. At one point, Dan Aykroyd has a penis for a nose. What? Like in a, in a quick like dream sequence, Chevy Chase sees him as having a penis for a nose. All that's crazy. And then Digital Underground walks up and Tupac is there. And I was like, well, this takes the cake. I mean, <laughs> now it is officially one of the wildest movies I've ever seen. Wow. Newsflash. Welcome to your news slash. First up, Alter has some badass news. The Alter short film Stucco is officially Oscar qualified. What an honor and a huge congrats to the filmmakers, Janina Gavankar and Russo Schelling. We had them on our very first episode. We couldn't be more excited for them. And uh, what do you say we get you back as guests after you've won? Stucco has hit over 26 million views and is the second most viewed Alter film of all time. In an interview with GQ, Vigo Mortensen says, David Cronenberg is going to get back to his origins with a new horror film. Vigo says, it's disturbing and it's good, I think, but since his origins, he's obviously developed in terms of technique and self-assurance as a director. The project is something Cronenberg wrote a long time ago and has never gotten made. They hope to film this summer. John Carpenter is back with a new Lost Themes album entitled Lost Themes 3, Alive After Death. Accompanied by his son Cody Carpenter and godson Daniel Davies, the trio have created a new collection of electronic music. 
They also collaborated on 2018's score for Halloween, and now just a few years later, Lost Themes 3 is out, February 5th on Sacred Bones. And that's it. That's your News Slash. News Slash. Monstrous Femme Films is a filmmaking collective focused on producing progressive horror flicks by a variety of diverse horror filmmakers and carving out a place for young women, non-binary, and queer folks in the future of the horror genre. Today, we talk to Emma Kogan, a costumer and a producer, about her love for the genre and how costumes can tell us more about a character than we may think. Then, we talk to Hannah Mae Cumming, a writer, producer, and director, known for her alter short film, Fanatico, about why she loves horror and what she'd love to see more of in the genre. Well, thank you for joining us, Emma. We're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's just start at the top. What made you fall in love with horror and what made you fall in love with costumes? Well, gosh, my my journey with horror started when I was a kid, um, primarily through like old sci-fi. I would watch sci-fi and horror like B-movies with my dad all the time. Um, And for a while when I was a kid, it was just really fun. It was just like a fun escapist adventure. I liked the thrill. Um, And then when I got a little older um, and I started learning more about film, I was really interested in film that pushed the boundaries of the human condition. And that was something that I wanted to explore through horror because when I kind of put the puzzle pieces together and realized that horror was that, you know, pushing the boundary. And that was something where you could really explore a person's psyche and kind of work through really traumatic things and just crazy stuff that's what really drew me to it and yeah I just sort of fell into it and it was something where I was just I just really enjoyed the thrill I enjoyed like the b-movie aspect and then kind of adapted that into really enjoying all kinds of horror psychological horrors like my jam now and yeah I'm just obsessed with all of it and That sort of um, costuming, I would say, I fell into uh, at a young age through my grandma, kind of unrelated to horror, and they sort of intersected when I was a young adult. And uh, my grandma was really into fashion history, and that is something that I sort of developed an interest in through my grandma. And we would just talk and talk and talk about fashion history. I would ask her constant questions about why people wore things and why, you know, certain environments led to certain choices in dress and how that, you know, how you could really read history through what people were wearing. Um, And so, yeah, I sort of got into costume through fashion history and it costume design wasn't necessarily something I initially wanted to do when working in film. I kind of started with just that interest in like maybe writing, maybe directing, you know, maybe just, I just wanted to create. I didn't really have a Uh, set direction and I guess I still don't I like to dabble but I (laughs) fell in love with costume design um, when I studied fashion history for a brief time in 2018 and it was just so fascinating to me and I realized how important costume was to film and how no matter what route I took with filmmaking I wanted to have uh, knowledge or be involved with the costume design because I wanted to explore those psychological elements that drew me to horror and film in the first place through the costume and through the dress. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind awesome. of 
where I'm at now. And I've been doing some costume design stuff the last few years. And I'm excited to dabble in more roles and stuff. And yeah, I absolutely love costume design. And it's, it's fun to analyze the little intricate details of mm-hmm. films where, especially with horror, where you're like, oh, that's why they're wearing that. Or you can kind of tell what the plot's going to be like through mm. the costumes. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the things that interest me about it and kind of what led me to where I'm at now. Do you remember, it. do you remember what, uh, what was one of the first costumes you saw specifically in that sci-fi or B movie genre that you felt like was iconic or that struck you that maybe stayed with you that maybe you drew pictures of Mm -hmm. that is an amazing question um (laughs) when i was younger um part of what got me into the b movie thing was actually just the original star trek series i'm still obsessed with it to this day and so badly want to make like a retro sci-fi just for the costumes alone because i think they're brilliant they're intricate they're that's kind of the side that's like that I enjoy that's not necessarily super psychological it's just like really fun and campy um and just really creative and when I was a kid I would like try and like make replicas of like props from Star Trek (laughs) and that's cool um they were real real amateur like we're talking paper mache and um that is what really drew me to that kind of stuff and so Star Trek costumes were just I was absolutely obsessed with them. And then I fell in love with horror costuming through things like, you know, Bride of Frankenstein and kind of, I just loved the details. And um, I've really, through the last few years, the more I've done costume design on horror films and, you know, worked with costume design, I've grown uh, more fond of appreciating the details in the horror costuming as well. Do you have a favorite era of uh, costuming in Mm -hmm. horror films specifically? Yes, I would say that um, the 60s, like late 60s and early, well, actually all the 60s, to be honest, (laughs) Um, and like early 70s, um, 60s and 70s are, I just think there's, it's like the sweet spot with costuming for me. Um, Recently, I've grown fonder of like, you know, classic horror, like 30s costuming, Mm. but that's just, that's a growing interest that I'm still really getting into and diving into um but yeah I would say my main and my first love of um horror costuming is the 60s and 70s because I just think that it's uh the like the socio-political environment of the 60s and 70s I think created a really interesting environment for the costumes too I have to ask uh what did you think of the costuming in the Suspiria remake which was kind of set in that era, but made in the modern times. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? I thought it was a really good, I thought it was pretty solid for a contemporary rendition. And, you know, I can, I can appreciate that. I think that that, that's one of my favorite remakes um, of, you know, the recent years. And uh, obviously, absolutely love the original. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, yeah, that they did a good job at, making it feel fresh without uh completely disbanding themselves from the original and i really i appreciated that and i always appreciate callbacks to original films and i think that that oftentimes can make remakes much stronger yeah Yeah. for sure i don't know where i'm going with this thought but i'll share the thought in case it goes somewhere (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh but i was i was reading an article about 
how take Stranger Things, for example, and it's it's saying we're in the 80s. But what winds up happening is they're really a reflection of highlights or they're a, re a reflection of nostalgia for mm -hmm. a time that isn't actually a reflection of living in that time. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, living in that time, not everybody was wearing, uh, you know, cut off shirts and uh, and had flock of seagulls haircuts. Like, really? <laughs> right. I'm surprised. So, yeah. <laughs> How do you go about researching something, I guess, to place mm -hmm. it in an era and not just do the highlights and not just reflect the nostalgia, but actually make mm -hmm. it feel lived in? I find that I would assume that's very difficult. Mm -hmm. I yeah, absolutely. I would say that it does depend on the like the tone of the film. It's like something like Stranger Things, I think, does rely on those tropes of the given mm -hmm. era. And it, because they're, they're trying, I mean, Stranger Things is such like a strong, nostalgic. Right. That's the feel. point of it's it. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like super stylistic. But when you're looking at something that's supposed to be more of a realistic period piece, um, oftentimes it's like, you're just trying to find, you're going through like yearbooks, like old yearbooks. You're going hmm. through mm. um, old catalogs and oftentimes like the old like Sears catalogs are really fun yeah. to look at. Um, and yeah, you're just trying to find often, it's like asking family members for pictures of people from that era versus just, I mean, you'll do like a, an initial Google search, um, but you want to get as much reality in it and talk to people that lived in that era, if possible, um, that can really broaden your idea of what that environment was like. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, oftentimes in short films that I've worked in and, uh, you know, a lot of our, our works with Monstrous Femme Films has often been very, like, directly, like, an homage. And so yeah. when I'm doing costume design on projects like that, it's really about talking to the director and, and getting the same vision of, like, what direction do you want to go with this? Do you want mm -hmm. me to, you know, what you want is you want people, you want the audience to identify it as that period. Right. Because if you, what's tricky with that is like if you um if you go too realistic and if you say like if you like don't want to do because a lot of tropes aren't realistic mm -hmm. um and you know like in the 70s it's like a lot of people when they think of the 70s they're actually thinking of like the late 60s um and so if you were actually to do the early 70s you'd have to have this balance of like what do the general you know what is the general audience identify as the 70s and what will immerse them and what was real and so it's mm -hmm. kind of like you're trying to find that balance that does it for the audience and you know what side you strengthen depends on the tone of the film where the director wants to go with it um, that reminds me of this um, article I read about, it has nothing to do with horror, but the costume <laughs> designer of Mad Men, the TV series. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because she was talking about exactly what you were saying, how like the outfits that people wore in that show, they weren't completely authentic, but she did that intentionally because she added some sort of, or some contemporary elements that way modern audiences could still feel like mm. it wasn't too foreign or something so um yeah and it, yeah it's always really fascinating when people do period pieces because how often is it actually truly a reflection of that time 
Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I Another good kind of like non-horror example is there's a lot of discourse about like the Little Women remakes where like right. the recent one kind of went a little buck wild with not being super period accurate and they <laughs> wanted to use like and, and like it's it's like I think they did it all right a lot of people don't um but a lot of people do it's kind of a up in the air um but th what they did they like played with colors and they wanted to play with textures that sort of represented the character's story because the script was more character driven than the I think it was the 90s remake um, that was more realistic and like mm -hmm. realism and they nailed the period um, but the tone was a little different than this remake yeah yeah I appreciated that blend uh, of the Greta Gerwig version I appreciated that it felt more casual in its attempt at representing the era and more concerned mm -hmm. with representing the emotion and those characters mm -hmm. I thought that was cool well what are some of your favorite horror films in regards to the costume design? I would say my, it's funny because I actually watched this relatively recently, um, a couple years ago. Um, it's The Devils by Ken Russell. Which, which is, I have never seen. Oh me my gosh, you guys have to see this movie. It rocked me. I was like, <laughs> it was just unreal. And when I, I wasn't even like, I love Ken Russell and it wasn't even the costume design that I loved about it at first. But when I looked closer, the symbolism that they do in the costuming, it's like an early seventies. And this is a perfect example of like what I was mentioning earlier with like loving the sixties and seventies. This is like the prime time example of that. Um, and it is a period piece, but they put like really interesting spins and different accessories that are really interesting. For example, um, it's sort of the theme is a lot there's a lot of worshiping themes it's like sexual repression worship christianity they play with a lot frankly there's almost too many themes that they that they delve into in this movie but um one of my favorite costumes in that movie is um his name's father bar and he is this is really nasty guy he has a nasty attitude um but people kind of worship and he's kind of like the christian rock star and what they did was like and this was set in like the 17th century i believe and they what his costume he kind of just looked like a rock star they gave him like little tiny purple oval sunglasses mm. he had like the rock star hair it really evoked the era of the 70s um and that specific time and the people that you know ken russell was around you know given that he's you know worked with the who and yeah all that jazz um it was really interesting to see that influence of the time but also i liked that they played with kind of giving him sort of this like 17th century goes 70s you know glam rock rock star god mm -hmm. um, because they're different forms of worship and so playing mm -hmm. with that in the costume I was just obsessed with and you know oh, gosh, I gotta watch that oh yeah. my goodness there's like a there's like a girl that she's kind of known for being really jealous and she has like green lipstick which is absurd for the time but I love that they did that because it's mm -hmm. like she's kind of like green with envy she's jealous and I I love it I highly highly recommend it um it's, oh yeah I think a masterpiece well Tommy is one of my favorite Oh, yeah. Of all time, too. And the movie version I love. 
Um, what about uh, any modern films that strike you from a, a costume design perspective uh, in regards to horror? Because I find, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll think differently in the future and we look back to this time and mm -hmm. think, wow, there was a lot of really standout, unique uh, looks, but I find a lot of modern horror doesn't have anything too exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, when it's I placed kind of in the agree. modern time, when it's placed in yeah. the modern time, yeah. Yeah, I would agree and it's, it's modern horror is interesting right now and it's almost like we're seeing a lot of like homage resurgence mm -hmm. um, especially since stranger things where it's almost like people are craving that style but we're like oh, maybe we're just not stylish anymore we gotta call back to something else <laughs> yeah no like are we getting boring but i will say you know oftentimes like midsummer that is something that i think the costume design is spectacular mm -hmm. yeah, that's true um and even down to having you know danny in those like gray sweats i think that that was like a good use of boring clothes mm -hmm. um because it 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 really told her character's story mm -hmm. um and you know you you got in the mind of that character and that's something that you know as long as i think modern horror costuming while sometimes can be visually boring aside from the amazing flower dress in midsummer right right um, yeah. which was incredible um but it's as long as you are getting into the character's head and that costume can tell their story and give you more context to their story um that you know the dialogue can't i think that that's where it succeeds and so yeah. Even if it's sometimes a little boring, I think it can still work. Uh, things like Hereditary, where I'm like, the costuming didn't stand out to me, but it flowed really well with the production design and the tone of the film, and it, it made sense. And so yeah, I can at least appreciate it from that angle. Um, but yeah, I would say like Midsommar is something that does stand out to me, um, particularly because they used like really old material to like make the dresses and the garments and like everything was really intentional and down to the texture of the fabrics that they used and mm -hmm. so I thought that was pretty brilliant yeah and the thing the thing about modern horror movies and just like modern fashion in general like because we're in it we don't see it as anything yeah. spectacular mm -hmm. it's just regular like us like right. even when we look just 10 years ago now it's mm -hmm. like i remember being in that era and thinking what is our fashion now like what is mm -hmm. that but now i can think oh i definitely know what it is like when yeah. you look back on it so exactly I mean, yeah i remember i remember seeing scream in theaters and it just feeling like the most modern you know, kind of just in, in regards to costumes, like kind of bland, like everybody just looked like a normal person. Yeah. And then when I rewatched <laughs> that recently, I was like, was that made in the eighties? <laughs> like, I know. The it, style yeah. of that era of nineties was still so, I mean, I don't even know what was going on, but. Yeah, I would honestly like, I feel like doing modern, like I've talked about this a little with some friends where it's like, if you do like a 2011 period piece now, that is so much harder than doing like a 70s period piece because you don't have that much to work off of. And you right. don't have those mm -hmm. like tropes to like reference and be like, do I want more or less of that? You're just kind of like, we just came out of that. And like, I'm not sure. I, I think it was, I think Uncut Gems is the one that was set in 2011 that my friend yeah. had brought up and they were like, I thought they did a really good job. And I was right. like, yeah, gosh, I mean, it's, it's difficult to do that. I mean, maybe now in like, 
2007 we could that's probably where it's like okay we could probably handle that that period right there was like a clear delineation right but yeah uncut gems was kind of in that slipstream of like yeah between defining uh, eras mm-hmm. um i want to talk about black christmas real quick yes because um, yes. you mentioned in our emails that that was one of your favorites i assume you mean the mm-hmm. the original I and do if you don't okay. get out of here <laughs> <laughs> i feel so bad for not liking a lot of modern i mean i do i do like a lot of modern horror but there's some that just like don't do it for me mm-hmm. <laughs> i want yeah. it to well, but you, you know i mean Bowser i think will join the club yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i'm like oh i'm not a hard ass about it but i'm also yeah. like oftentimes the original can is better um totally. and black christmas is i think one of those i do honestly i do like the recent remake um but yeah love 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 the original um it's it's it feels so that to me feels like 70s realism Mm -hmm. and with like absolutely delicious set design um that just goes so well with the costume design um and i just i think that that's just like an absolutely thrilling movie um or maybe not thrilling it's 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 creepy it's a mystery and it's suspenseful and i just i love it something i working on right now is trying to write a black Hanukkah because I'm like, give us a stylistic Hanukkah movie. Yes. Um, And so that's something that I've, my interest of black Christmas sparked that. And I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to hop on doing the, you know, let's do an homage because it's more stylish, you know, like let's do a seventies Jewish horror just because it looks really fun. And, you know, we didn't get it. So we deserve it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that would be so fun. Please write that. I love that. Yes, yes. Black Christmas, what they do really well is making it feel real. And the characters oftentimes wear things that are like a little strange, like that massive fur coat. That was yeah. his own fur coat. And he just wanted to wear it and they let him wear it and it felt real. And sometimes that, that makes me think about how um, oftentimes when you have a good relationship with your actors as a costume designer, if they have pieces that fit their character, that they feel like fit their character and they are already comfortable in those pieces, it's, you know, that can help them act better and that can help oh, them yeah. sell it. And so that, when I think of Black Christmas, I think of that because they did do a lot of that and they wore a lot of pieces that were their own or they worked their own style into it. Um, yeah. And yeah, I would say that that is something that stands out about that film for me. That's great. And it, and and it it had a, an ability uh to make things resonate and feel iconic even though they were still mm-hmm. realistic and and somewhat understated. Like I can remember Olivia Hussey's sweater mm-hmm. uh the throughout yeah, throughout that whole movie. Um mm-hmm. and I think that's a trick is to not overstate something to force it being iconic, but yet it still remains. I mean, I, I I know this is a complete tangent, but I just think about Freddy Krueger uh, mm-hmm. often, all the time, and I, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, his look is 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 not. It shouldn't be as memorable as it is. The striped sweater is kind of. It, it's not as like vibrant as you remember it. I, it for mm-hmm. what I've when I revisit these things, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of round and red. It's kind of green mm-hmm. and red. I don't know the fedora, but yet it just it just got in there and it and it worked. Yeah. It's it's almost like it's strange. Like that is a strange costume, and it like in a really good way. Yeah, it's, it feels very real, but you're also like, what is he wearing? Right. <laughs> but that's why that's why mm-hmm. it sticks because yeah. it's not something that someone would have worn ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And you and that's 
you know, that's what makes a good yeah. monster costume, a good villain costume. And I, yeah. I think that like, you know, a lot of it is like the distressing and the aging of the yeah. costumes that kind of really make it feel real and disturbing. And you're like, maybe, I mean, honestly, that striped sweater with the fedora, I would question if it was like not distressed, but when it's yeah. distressed, it's like, you're questioning mm-hmm. why he's wearing that. And you're also like, this is creepy. It, right. it adds to the environment of being creepy. And so right. it's, yeah, that's a really good costume for that reason, because he, he he's supposed to be creepy. And I think his costume is creepy. <laughs> and it feels like he's been in it for ages. Ever. You know? yeah, yeah. Just forever. Exactly. That's, yeah, I think that's a really good, good example of a solid villain costume. Mm-hmm. So what are you currently working on, Emma? So I'm currently working on our next Monstrous Femme Films project, which is going to be directed by Hannah. And it's going to be a 70s period piece. So that's going to be really fun to costume design. I'm also producing and art directing. And so it's going to be a massively fun project. And we're really excited about it. And then I'm currently writing my next short, which is going to be a psychological surreal horror. Um, It's called Penny and the Poppies. And it's going to be a 60s girl band horror. And I'm really excited about it. A lot of my... A lot of my costume design influences is the reason I want to make it because I really just want to put people in cute clothes with a decent story, I hope, Um, and and then hopefully developing that Black Hanukkah idea more. But yeah, I'm just excited to make more stuff with Monster Spend Films. And yeah, that's what I'm currently working on besides our online content, which has been really fun, too. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, all of that sounds really exciting. Thank you. And speaking of monstrous, what is it? Monstrous (laughs) film. It's a lot of words. Monstrous Femme Film Collective. We've got Hannah in the room with us. Welcome, Hannah. Hannah. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about Monstrous Femme Film Collective and how it began? Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, 2018, we decided that we wanted to make a horror short called Fanatico, which is like a neo-giallo inspired by Phenomena, Suspiria, all that stuff. And um, we spent like a year making it. We had no money. uh, We had no experience. We were all students and we were just friends kind of just making it for fun. And uh, it kind of blossomed into something we wanted to continue with. So uh, now we're just making, we're developing this anthology where we're making these short films uh, in the horror genre focused on uh, uplifting uh, women and queer folk uh, 
in front of and behind the camera. I love it. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Fanatico. Um, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really cool, but I also, um, <laughs> the subgenre of all girls schools is like my favorite for some reason. Um, <laughs> Why so is that? Did you go to an all girls school? I or no? did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, a lot of weird feelings about nuns. <laughs> um, yeah. I would love to know what the inspiration for the story was. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Um, well, I lived in the Bible belt for like nine years and I was surrounded by religion, Christianity, uh, Catholicism, and I'm like a raging atheist. So <laughs> where really... specifically, where in the Bible belt specifically? <laughs> uh, Oklahoma. Answer. Okay. That's where my mom's from. Really? I... Where? Yeah. She's originally from Norman, I guess. Stillwater. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not from there, but I did live there for a long time. So I developed, you know, this distaste for um, religious authority. And so that's kind of where that stemmed from. Um, yeah. And then just, you know, sexual liberation and uh, issues with that as well. Were there any specific, uh, any specific Giallo films that, uh, that you wanted to pay homage to even down to like, so were there certain compositions you wanted to recreate or lighting effects? Because that's all over the place in Fanatico. And I know that's a big stamp <laughs> of the Giallo movies is like real dramatic lighting shifts and stuff like that. Yeah, I would say the story and like the supernatural like powers that the main character has definitely phenomena. Mm -hmm. We even tried to cast an actress who kind of reminded us of the young Jennifer Connelly. And then uh, the lighting, Suspiria, mm -hmm. for sure. And there were a lot of shots that, because we were making it on such a shoestring budget, didn't make it in that I had hoped would make it in. And those were like Tenebrae and Bava and Fulci. But I would say Phenomena and Suspiria were the big ones. I want people to reference phenomena more often. I feel like it's not one of the go-tos, but I love that movie. It's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, it's my favorite Argento. It's so good. So, you know, you made it very clear what you are fans of and you pay homage to that and have a lot of references. So when you're doing something that is so um, referential, how do you include your personal stamp on it? Like, how do you, when people watch your films, how do they know that this is a monstrous film? Wait, what? Oh my God. <laughs> film, film twister. Film. <laughs> <laughs> like how, how would they know, or that it's a Hannah film or that it's mm -hmm. an Emma film? Like how do you keep your you in there while it's still being referential? I think that comes with subversion of tropes, um, which we've done in both films. Um, and kind of modernizing the the message of a lot of those films. Like Giallo, they're very, I love them, but they're very misogynistic. And mm -hmm. same with the summer camp <laughs> slashers. Mm -hmm. And so I think adding like a modern twist and like a feminist message, definitely, uh, you know, it's kind of our stamp. Yeah, I would say I would completely agree. And it's also like, I know with something I want to do is like tell, stories that weren't necessarily told like uh i'm trying to write a queer story that maybe wouldn't be uh touched on in the 60s you know things like mm -hmm. that and so we're what we're you know generally the message i think behind monstrous femme films is that we want to 
tell stories in ways they haven't be, been told before. Um, yeah. And ways we, we want to showcase the representation that we haven't seen um, or the films that we haven't been able to see before. And, you know, like Hannah said, um, her films have subverted from these tropes because it's like, oh, I love this movie. I love this slasher. But then it's kind of tainted by the misogyny. And you're like, I don't enjoy this as much because <laughs> of this factor. And being yeah. able to that in, you know, these films and our upcoming films is, uh, you know, of interest. And then also just being able to make really fun stylistic pieces that showcase our personal style. Yeah, yeah we're kind cool. of like remaking the movies that we all love, but for us, I yeah. guess. That's yeah. awesome. I, I know that I, I bring this up on the show a lot, but <laughs> a problem I have when I watch old things is that I I can't get out of my like modern mindset where I'm just kind of like, oh, he just like threw the F word, like, um, <laughs> yeah. like the homophobic F word, you know, like, mm -hmm. it's like, I can't get over it. Um, but it, but then at the same time, there is so much beauty in like old movies. So I do love that, that that's what you're doing because you're basically saying, hey, this is what this is what's good about those movies and we're just going to make it better. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, yeah, I think that's an, an awesome way in because we talk about that a lot on, the, on this podcast that there can be and, and, and I admittedly did like a lot of this podcast could just be like Bowser reinvestigates problematic favorites that he had when he was <laughs> when he was a kid because yeah as a kid a lot of that stuff went over my head so I have this uh, relationship to some older material that's it's just endeared itself to me mm -hmm. and then we'll watch it on the podcast and Sapphire will be like and also you know it's like highly problematic problematic and I'm like yeah but that monster effect was so good I know so I love the <laughs> of going back into the things that you love about those films but re you know making the messages better and um i mean a lot of those old films didn't have a message at all too <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um well it, we talked to emma a bit about how she got into horror and it was through sci-fi and b movies um uh what was your way in hannah what was, especially coming from the bible belt did you have to <laughs> mm -hmm. i remember I, I i uh i don't know if i've told this story on the podcast but i was on a youth group trip and with my church and didn't want to be there and uh, you know wanted to be so anywhere else. And I was like, I'm gonna go down the street and rent a movie and come back. And my youth leader, my, my youth pastor was like, okay, but we're all about to like go do something on the boardwalk or whatever. It was in Ocean City, Maryland. And I was like, y'all have fun. I'm going to rent a movie. And I rented Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> and came back and put it on in the house, like the house that we were all staying at for this youth trip. And my pastor allowed it because he was like, you know, I'll let you sit here and watch this because I think it's an example of like man's depravity to man. And he had to, he, he had to frame it in some kind of, you know, religious teaching angle. That's so funny. So, that literally happened awesome. to me when I was trying to, I would like force my friends in my rural town to like sit down and watch I Possession or Orphan. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, watch this. We're having fun. <laughs> right. This is happening. They're like, happening. oh, Okay. <laughs> what did um, you do, Hannah? Did you were you allowed to watch movies like that? I was. My mom's a huge horror fan. Oh, that's God. Great. Um, Goosebumps for me. Yeah, I was obsessed was with Goosebumps. Uh, yeah, I love Goosebumps and Scream, as well. Yeah. Was a big one, and yeah. like Tim Burton. You know all the Gateway stuff. Nineties. Yeah. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> it's my era. Yeah. For for both of you, when you look at the landscape of 
modern horror, what do you feel like is lacking? What do you hope to see more of? And maybe it's through your own personal creations, but what kind of shift would you like to see in, uh, in the horror movies that we see nowadays? Style. Yeah. I was thinking that color, too. Color. I was thinking that. When we started making Fanatico, it was mainly because we were like, the horror genre is severely lacking in style and color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And fashion. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I would I would also agree style and, and color. And I think that, I don't know, I think a lot of it is also, oddly enough, color grading. I feel like horror right now and horror for the last like 10 years, it's maybe coming out of it very gray it's very gray and I'm bored and I know that like Stranger (laughs) Things kind of revitalized that but I you know like we talked about earlier you know a lot of modern horror it's like either boring or it's an homage and I would like to bridge the gap like I want to see right modern horror play with color because there's color to play with it's everywhere there's so many ways to do it that I would just I crave it I want it Mm. it's what we all deserve and it can yeah. still be scary. Yeah. Color, yes. Colorful yeah. films can still be scary. I don't know what this like disconnect is. There was <laughs> I, a real shift into everything just being drab. Like horror yeah. meant drab, it meant sun-stained and, and, you know, gritty in a way that was like concrete and wood. And even all the posters were just like streaks of dark oil on wood. Yeah. That was the texture. If you Google yeah. horror texture, it's like, that's what comes up is someone spilled what a- started that? A paint, like, uh, what? stain can on wood yeah when did we get into this era of like horror movies have to be very very darkly lit and like no color at all maybe like Like, 2010 i don't know maybe earlier i what comes to mind is like things like the conjuring or insidious which are like arguably fun but so gray they're just dark yeah Yeah. not true actually i do think they ushered in like an era of kind of yeah, browns and tans and grays yeah. as your horror palette. And maybe even like the, I don't remember the year, but what year was the Chainsaw remake? Because I feel like the Texas Chainsaw remake worked for a lot of people and that set the tone. That set the tone I know for like trailers. Every trailer had the like sound yeah. effect because that was in the Texas Chainsaw trailer. But um, I don't know, maybe Hostel too? Hostel was part yeah. of that. I was going to say like, when they started doing all the remakes of the older horror movies, but they were like the darker, right. like modernized yeah. versions, mm. maybe around then. Yeah. That makes maybe sense. Maybe Saw? I don't know, maybe. Mm. Yeah. But also, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Even like early Saw, it's like fine. But then you get like, even with, I don't know, the, the later it gets, the darker and, you know, it's kind of like grimy. Like they want it to look grimy. Yeah. And then I just felt like the, like Jigsaw, that mm-hmm. was just also so gray. It just like got worse. It's like, oh, yeah. we're doing a remake of something that was already like kind of dark and grimy and gray, but then yeah. making it more dark. Not to say I don't absolutely enjoy the Saw franchise unabashedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like my favorite franchise. It's, <laughs> it's so I fun. For... I would, oh my God, I would die so for Tobin Bell. I would die for him. <laughs> Love Mark He'll probably die before you. Yeah. Know, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Emma and Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Where can people find you each on social media and Monstrous Femme Films? 
Thank you so much for having us. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Python Patsy. Um, and then you can find Monstrous Femme Films on Instagram at Monstrous Femme Films. And then our Twitter is Monstrous underscore Femme. Uh, and then our website is Monstrous Femme Films if you want to learn more about us and what we're up to. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Hannah May Film. And you can check out our film on Alter called Fanatico. Perfect. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Oh, We've had a great you. time. All right, Alter Society, listen up. This week we're watching Evil Eye on Amazon Prime Video. So watch it and join us next week when we discuss what we thought. Before we sign off, here's what's coming up on Alter. On February 7th, we celebrate Black History Month with a collection of shorts from some amazing black filmmakers like Brian Keith Montgomery, Jeffrey Reddick, Khalid Ridgway, and many more. On February 8th, The Lover. With her engagement to Brad, Lisa thought she had finally found the one. Now, Brad has ended the relationship and Lisa is not sure if she can go on. And on February 10th, Dead Hearts. A young mortician learns that not even death can stand in the way of true love. A whimsical, gothic bedtime story filled with love, loss, taxidermy, kung fu, and biker werewolves. That's all for this week's episode. Until next time, stay altered. You can catch new episodes of Alter Weekly every Thursday. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe and download. Alter Weekly is produced by Andrew Bowser with theme music by Sapphire Sandalo. Alter Weekly is executive produced by Stephen Michael and Lauren Palmer at Gunpowder and Sky. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.